In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Almighty and everlasting God, in Christ you have revealed your glory. As a person named James, it may not surprise you to learn that I've read this passage from Mark a time or two. And what never ceases to amaze me is that every time I read it, I end up casting James and John in a slightly different light. On one hand, it's very tempting to look down on the two disciples, to scold them and rebuke their inclinations with the benefit of hindsight, even though they know only in part. It's tempting to rush to the very clear example of what we ought not to do and bypass the invitation to reflect, to make an accounting of how I make their same mistake all the time, and likely more often than I can number. Which brings me to my other hand, the other way I sometimes read this story. It's a compassionate reading, as you might have guessed, and it's a compassionate reading because I, like the saint with whom I share a name, know something about that temptation, about that inclination to which this passage speaks. I can see myself in this story, and it's not the flattering depiction that I would like it to be. That said, beyond either of these two lenses, I suspect that the heart of the matter is likely somewhere in, in between, since that's where it often is. So let's start from the beginning and work our way through. Typical of Mark, the author of today's gospel wastes very little time before he gets right into it. Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. It's a pretty bold start from James and John. And from the outset, it's clear that Jesus is coming to this conversation from a very different place. Speaking with a spirit of openness and perhaps even a spirit of curiosity, Christ replies, what is it you want me to do for you? Or as another translation puts it, what is it? I'll see what I can do. Yet as we then find, as we then find, it appears that this open spirit, that this great welcoming of dialogue seems to buttress the two disciples in their boldness, in their request. Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory, they say. Oh, is that all you want? Small potatoes. And here I thought they were going to ask for something really big. But of course, it's not small potatoes. It's not small in the slightest. We all know that now and again, only with the benefit of hindsight. And because Jesus senses that the sons of Zebedee do not actually know what it is they're asking for, he postures themselves in their conversation, fully recognizing this. He speaks to the cup he will drink and the baptism he will be plunged into and asks if they are prepared to take their share in these things. They respond in the affirmative, but they say yes, just a little too quickly it again becomes clear that they know not what they ask. And when you consider that up to this point, Jesus has tried multiple times in preceding chapters to clue them in, to realign their conception of greatness, it makes their unknowing sting even worse. 
But as I said earlier, I have sympathy for James and John. I feel for them, I really do. Because when it comes to greatness and glory, it can be easy to get confused. And when you think about it, could any of the disciples have ever fully prepared for what would greet them in Jerusalem? Holding this story in one hand and then fast forwarding a little bit, how stark a contrast it must have been to see two robbers at Jesus's left and right hand, but certainly not in glory. And how staggering it must have been to find a crown of thorns and a cross where they had pictured a throne and the trappings of earthly kings. But even so, even as it seems clear that James and John have no idea what they are actually asking for, as Christ then tells them, it won't take long before they eventually find out. Yes, it is certainly tempting to look down on these two and to be angry with them, like the other ten disciples, we can easily work ourselves up to a feverish pitch. But if we enter that mindset, if we step into that similar and frenzied state, it will no doubt be because we, like them, have lost our way in the story, which cautions humility at every turn. No question about it. No question about it. The world we live in makes it quite easy to get confused. I think we and the disciples have that dilemma very much in common. Great power was as alluring then as it is now, and the same can also be said for great wealth and great pride and a great many temporal and temporary things. But the more I read this passage, the more I've come to believe that its best gift, that its most important word for us, is the knowledge that because of Christ, we don't have to be great. Because God is great, and that's more than enough. And because that's more than enough, we don't have to buy what the world so desperately wants to sell us. We don't have to prosper that age-old myth, that myth that says that if you get into the right school, or land the right job, or make a little more money, or gain a little more status, that you'll be able to satisfy that hunger that always wants just a little bit more. Slaying that dragon again and again, the gospel never fails to call us to a better way, to where we know we ought to be. Through the redeeming work of Jesus, the grip of that myth comes undone and falls to the floor in Christ dying, so that we and the whole world can rise to new life with him, so that we and every person can make our home with God. Because the great promise that waits on the other side of every grave is the unshakable truth that at the end of time, all of us, all of us will be seated at God's right and left hand. All of us will come to know the greatness Jesus speaks of, the greatness God means. Yes, yes, a core impulse of living is a desire to strive after things, and that impulse can be good, but only if that desire has an object, and if that object is God. And if you find that hard, if you struggle to discern a way forward, are to articulate what that vision of greatness looks like. Start with how God has been great to you. How has God shown you great compassion or justice or mercy? How has God shown you a glimpse of the kingdom or a peace that passes understanding? How has God shown you great love? If you're here in this place, if you've come to make your weekly pilgrimage from font to table, I imagine some of those questions have already been answered for you. 
Because whether it's through the waters of baptism, through bread and wine broken, or through Christ's self-emptying love poured out on the cross, the gift of being here, the gift of being here week after week, is that we get to see true greatness. We get to see true greatness all the time. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.